Hello, Kachimbonas. I'm so excited to bring you this interview. I interviewed Professor Carla Montenegro about her research on racial identity in Panama. And I'm super excited to bring this to you. This is part of exploring Central American identity, which has always been a central focus of this podcast. And I do want to be mindful of not centering Salvadoran experiences when we talk about Central America, because I actually think that that's a pattern that I'm already seeing. So I'm really excited to bring you this interview. If you want to support Radio Cachimbona, you can become a patron for five or ten dollars a month, and you will get access to the lit review, which are really dope conversations with women of color around timely texts. And the other way that you can support is by leaving an Apple podcast rating and review. It really helps. Um, I have 214 reviews and five stars. Woo! But it would really help to get that number up to 250. Every rating and review helps with visibility a lot. There's also Radio Cachimbona merch that you can buy. You can Venmo at Cachimbona underscore pod for $5 for a bookmark, a keychain, or a sticker. And you can also follow Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, just sharing this podcast with a friend that you think would benefit from learning about what we talk about here. Uh, well, yep, that's it. So I hope you all enjoy this interview. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I know it's a bit late for you on this Friday evening. So thank you so much for doing that. Absolutely. No problem. No problem at all. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, great. So hi, Cachimbonas. I want to introduce you all to Carla Gueron Montero, who's a professor of anthropology and specifically Latin American and Iberian studies, Africana studies, and women and gender studies at the University of Delaware. And we're going to be talking today about Afro-Panamanian identity. First, before getting into that, though, Carly, I just wanted to ask how you are this week and what you've done for self-care. Mm, thank you. Thank you for the question. I'm doing very well. <laughs> and uh, for self-care, I have taken walks. I, I really love to go to a forest that is nearby my home. And I have also exercised. That helps me keep focused and in good spirits. <laughs> That's great. I definitely mm -hmm. co-signed the walking suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Could you please explain the role that U.S. imperialist interests in the Panama Canal played in nation building in Panama? Sure, absolutely. So first of all, I want to share that Panama has been a strategic geopolitical location throughout its history. It's something that really, really mm -hmm. determines this nation state as what it is. So. After becoming independent from Spain in 1821, it voluntarily annexed uh, to Colombia and it became the, uh, as part of the province of Panama for 81 years. Uh, 
Then it became independent from Colombia in 1903, and it became dependent economically and politically uh, on the United States. And all of this history has been mm. a great preoccupation of politicians and intellectuals and artists about, th they have, they have, had a persistent concern about how to create a coherent myth of origin of the nation state, given all of the, what I just shared with you. So what has happened is that there have been sort mm -hmm. of two different legends in regards to uh, the origin of Panama. One of them is called the Leyenda Dorada or Leyenda Blanca, golden legend or white legend. And, and the idea of this legend is that mm -hmm. Panama became independent from Colombia because it always had the spirit of becoming an independent nation. And there are some uh, facts that actually document or, or confirm this position because there were at least 66 uprisings against the Colombian regime while Panama was part of Colombia. And then we have the counter narrative, which is called mm. the Leyenda Negra or Black Legend which mm. uh, proposes mm -hmm. that Panama is an invented nation that was created uh, due to the economic interests of Wall Street and France and the Panamanian upper classes. So this legend asserts that the governments of France and the United States aided, aided Panamanian politicians to proclaim independence from Colombia in order to start the construction of the Panama Canal. So we have these two very conflicting uh, ideas about the origin of um, the nation state. And I will say that there's uh, some truth in both, but to me what matters really is how this is appropriated by the elite, the uh, intellectuals, and also uh, the everyday people in Panama, what that means for them. Mm -hmm. So these are the two main ideas as to what was the influence of the United States in the construction of uh, Panama uh, through the construction of the Panama Canal. Can you explain who came up with these legends, I, I know it's a collective project, but what is the context of those two? There were a number of mostly intellectuals and writers in general who developed these ideas uh, throughout a, a long period of mm. time, starting uh, more or less in the late 19th century and throughout the 20th century. So there are a, a large number of individuals, and they are mostly from the upper classes, actually, who have written, the, particularly the golden legend. Mm. And, and there are scholars who are very critical of the mm. golden legend, mm -hmm. and they mm. want uh, other scholars to recognize that the United States was present and it did influence the way in which um, the situation occurred and the transformations that took place in Panama, that they did have a presence. So... I uh, have an anecdote about this because uh, many, many years ago when mm -hmm. I was at a conference in uh, Panama, I attended a panel and there was one scholar who uh, supported the Leyenda Negra. And he presented uh, on the topic, he provided really uh, convincing information about this. And it was almost uh, an uprising <laughs> in the conference because the other scholars and the people who were attending the conference who were Panamanians were very upset at him and just said that, that is absolutely not true. That the Leyenda Negra is is not true unequivocally, unequivocally, and that is not that is not the case. 
So this is still a very polarizing issue. It, it is absolutely a very, very polarizing issue. It continues to be. Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Can you speak, so kind of going off of what you just mentioned, can you speak to the U.S. influence of the construction of race in Panama, for example? I know that there's this conflicting narrative about what precisely was the impetus for the nation-building project in Panama, but I know for sure that the U.S. definitely influenced the construction of race in Panama, so I wanted you to speak on that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there are a few angles that we can take in order to answer this question. One of them is, of course, the fact that the two large infrastructural projects led by the U.S. interest in Panama, which are the Panamanian Railroad, which was constructed from 1850 until 1855 and the U.S.-led construction of the canal from 1904 to 1914, those infrastructural projects actually did bring a large number of people from all over the world to work uh, in the country. And as a result, uh, this made uh, Panama one of the most ethnically diverse nations in the Americas during the early 20th century, maybe even today. So this is a reality, this, this large presence of mm-hmm. uh, people from many different backgrounds um, and ethnicities coexisting in, in Panama. And the other angle is connected to the treatment that specifically peoples of Afro-Antillian descent that work in the canal received during the time uh, of the construction of the canal and certainly afterwards, up until the 1960s. So during that time, the United States government implemented laws in the canal zone that were similar, if not identical, to the Jim Crow system uh, that was in effect in the United States. So peoples of African Mm -hmm. descent living in the canal zone were paid under a different regime. There were two different roles, the gold role, which was for white U.S. citizens, and the silver role, which was for black U.S. citizens, Afrontilians, and Panamanians in general. And there, there was also a segregation in terms of the school mm. system, any kind of service facility, housing, post offices, public trains, public transportation in general within the context of the canal zone, and also uh, lower pensions. And everything um, was distributed according to uh, racial um, actually almost a caste system more so than a racial system. The justification was that it was focused on skills, but uh, in reality Mm. it was focused on race because people who had the exact same job, if they were um, of Afro-Antillian descent or black U.S. citizens, for instance, they will be paid less. They will be paid as part of the silver role rather than the gold role. So these are two examples of ways in which the U.S. did influence the ideas of race and the construction of race in Panama. But I, I also think that it's um, important to recognize that at the time, all throughout Latin America, there was, there was a system of racial asymmetry that, w- that occurred without necessarily the presence of the United States as, as, the, as the guilty party. And, and this, is, this is true because, for instance, in Panama, between 1850 and 1950, the estimation is that there were 200,000 Afrontilians who migrated to Panama. So it's a very large number of black bodies mm-hmm. that produced an anxiety of mobilities within the, the Panamanian elite, the Panamanian white elite. So this anxiety of mobilities cannot be, uh, the, the blame of this cannot be placed on um, the United States exclusively. And later, um, there are a number of laws that were implemented by Panamanian uh, 
presidents to either limit the arrival of, of black peoples or uh, deny them citizenship. So just to give you an example, mm -hmm. uh, in mm -hmm. 1941, uh, there was a, a change in the constitution that actually established that peoples of African descent who did not, who, whose original language was not Spanish, would mm -hmm. not be considered citizens. That meant that any Afrontilian, mm. even if they had been born in Panama, were not considered citizens. What rights did citizenship grant? What was the difference between a citizen and a non-citizen? The right to vote, the right to own property, for instance, the right to mm -hmm. just freely participate in all of the different services that were available in, in Panama at the moment. Uh, so, and another population mm. that had the same situation were peoples of Chinese descent. And uh, they had to find a way to either marry a person from Panama or find a way to connect uh, in terms of their businesses, for instance. There needed to be someone who was of Panamanian origin and not within these racial categories to be able to even have businesses or, or run their businesses that they already had. So it was, it was really, I would say, a nightmare for peoples of African mm. descent in particular. And it only lasted one year, though. So the Constitution lasted one year mm -hmm. and then it was uh, revoked. But the point is that these ideas were there and they were there for a long period of time in, in Panama, coexisting mm -hmm. with the myth of racial democracy. So it is, it is very uh, contradictory. We have on the one hand all of these asymmetries and all of these racist laws, and then on the other hand we have the myth that Panama is actually a, democracy, a racial democracy because precisely because of the miscegenation that has taken place for, for centuries in the country. What, which populations are indigenous to the land that we now call Panama? And why, why exactly were these groups that you're mentioning migrating to Panama? Was it all a part of the growth of the Panama Canal? Or, for example, where, where were the Chinese descendant folks coming from? Why, where were there black citizens and white citizens in the U.S.? And then there was this Afro-Antillian population. How did all these groups come to meet mm -hmm. in Panama? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So all of these groups came to meet to participate in the different infrastructural projects that mm -hmm. have characterized Panama because of its condition of uh, a place of transit. Uh, so there were five major projects. The first one was the Panamanian Railroad, which was organized by the United States, and it went from 1850 to 1855. So they, that project brought um, a number of peoples from many parts of the, uh, of the world, but especially from the Antilles. So the uh, Afrontilian workers were the largest number of workers for all of the projects that I mentioned and I will mention. So so that, that's the first mm -hmm. one. People from China were also brought to work there, but it, it, they just didn't last for too long. Uh, so at the end, the decision was made that the, the quote-unquote best workers for all of the infrastructural projects were in fact um, peoples of African descent from the Antilles. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm sorry, I, shouldn't, I, I didn't um, tell you the, about the other projects. So the other one was the efforts to build uh, the canal uh, from 18... From 1880 to 18, from 1880 to 1890, and then the U.S. efforts to build the canal, which was actually successful, from 1904 to 1914. 
And then there was another project to expand the, the locks in the canal in the 1940s. So for all of these projects, peoples of African descent were considered the ideal labor force. And that's why they came in such large numbers. But there were people from Europe and from China and other parts of Latin America who also migrated in search for job opportunities uh, in, in all of these projects that I just mentioned to you. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what, how did these, what was the aftermath of these infrastructure projects? Did I, your book is titled From Temporary Migrants to Permanent Attractions and talks about the tourism industry. So can, mm-hmm. can you speak to, to that transition mm-hmm. and what kind of, what constitutes Panama today? Mm-hmm. So all of those projects have remained one way or another and have uh, sort of uh, given the character of these cosmopolitan nation states uh, that Panamanians uh, really believe that they have about themselves. So that's one part of the myth that I think is is very important for, for Panamanians, this idea that they are the bridge of the world which is what the Panamalists consider. My argument in, in my book is that we are in a different era in Panama nowadays, sort of the post-tourism era, where tourism has become sort of a, a, the answer to, to many of the problems that Panamanians have. And uh, the search has been for moving away from presenting the nation state as merely a place where the Panama Canal is located. So even though the Panama Canal has been essential for not only for economic mm-hmm. uh, issues, but also for the identities of Panamanians, nowadays, at least from the perspective of governments starting in the 1990s when the country returned to democracies, uh, the emphasis has been on trying to find things to uh, highlight about their country that are not the Panama Canal. And in my perspective, that's when this idea of ethnicity as important for tourism and ecotourism Mm -hmm. and even residential tourism uh, has uh, developed in order to find ways to um, diversify the offerings that this Panamanian nation has. So that's why I think that tourism is really a a great window that allows us to understand the multiple constructions of the nation state and who is uh, welcomed. Uh, as part of the deconstruction and who is marginalized and remains as a temporary migrant uh, up until it becomes convenient to include it in the construction of the nation state. And in, in my perspective, that is what has happened with Afrontilians. Because of the fact that they were considered temporary migrants and the assumption was that eventually they would leave the country because they were there simply to participate in these infrastructural projects, they were able to, when they remained, they were able to be isolated to the degree that many of their practices, customs, traditions, I talk uh, quite a bit in the book about music and food, just as two examples, they were able to sort of protect these practices in some ways. And, and that's what made them attractive when tourism became this important industry in the country, because it was more attractive to have a nation mm-hmm. state that was ethnically diverse than to have one that would be homogeneous, right? So suddenly, Afrancilians became super attractive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They had all of the markings of what Panama wanted to present to the world. They were mm. cosmopolitan because they had knowledge of different networks. They were transnational. They were always connected to more mm-hmm. than just the Panamanian nation state. And they were the key representatives of the idea of the bridge of the world because they actually built the canal. So 
right? So suddenly they are this super attractive group that needs to be um, elevated, I would say, not necessarily even protected or supported economically. Mm -hmm. Right. Because another right. argument in my book is that they, uh, Afrontilians might have been recognized discursively as a result of tourism, but that doesn't, that has not translated into a better economic situation for the large majority of peoples of African descent. Mm -hmm. That's what I was going to ask. Who makes money from this tourism? Yeah. Uh, I, in general, I, I believe that major uh, transnational companies that participate in, in large touristic projects are the ones who are making money and probably the government, the national government, not mm. the uh, citizen who has a small uh, boarding home or a tiny restaurant because there really hasn't been support at that level. Right. Yeah. Can you speak to the history of the afro community in Bocas del Toro and the role of the United Fruit Company in that? Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, afro in, in Panama have had this long history of recurrent migrations for economic reasons. So I already mentioned all of the instances in which afro uh, uh, arrived in Panama. But in Bocas del Toro, this happened a little bit earlier. So it happened more or less in the in the in the 19th century, when um, workers who, who were enslaved peoples of Irish, English, and Scottish families, uh, specifically from Jamaica and Barbados, arrived in the, in the archipelago. So these uh, families left Jamaica and Barbados because there, there were very high taxes in their plantations, and it was more convenient to move el elsewhere. They moved to the archipelago of Bocas del Toro with their enslaved peoples, and there they started to, to, to grow uh, bananas specifically and, and cacao as well, those two um, products. And that's how Afrontilians arrived. Uh, that will be the first migration of Afrontilians to Bocas del Toro specifically. And then as a result of all the infrastructural projects I just mentioned to you, some of the Afrontilians who remained in Panama, because some of them left and many of them died. So some of the ones who remained in Panama moved to Bocas. And, and started working in these small banana plantations. And some of them were actually owners of banana plantations. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a different movement mm -hmm. of peoples of African descent to Bocas. And in the late 19th century is when the United Fruit Company is formed in Costa Rica, but it had lots of connections with Bocas del Toro and with Panama in general. And that's when we have the presence of the United Fruit Company in the archipelago of Bocas del Toro running the show. Uh, because as soon as they arrived, they hired most of the population for one uh, activity or another. And even the small uh, banana uh, planters who, who had their own uh, small plantations, they will sell the banana to the United Fruit Company. So they really manage everything. And they made it very prosperous. Uh, the capital of the archipelago, uh, Bocas Town, became a, a very prosperous city that had at the time in the early, late mm -hmm. 19th century, early 20th century, mm -hmm. consulates, it had newspapers, mm -hmm. it was a very cultured city. And Afrontilians, uh, even today, the people with whom I worked when I lived there in I, at the times that I have returned, they are very proud of that. They feel that they had a very, again, cosmopolitan, uh, high culture uh, upbringing 
that is completely different from the rest of Panamanians. Um, and it comes from this particular history of the presence of the United Fruit Company. But as it happens with all of the, of most at least of the, of the projects of the United Fruit Company, when it was no longer profitable because there, there, there were uh, diseases, fungus diseases in the plantations. So it just was not profitable to, mm. to stay in the archipelago. The United, United Fruit Company simply left mm. and moved to the mainland. And that's when there was a long period of stagnation economically and socially in uh, the archipelago. All of the consulates left, the newspapers were no longer working, and people just sort of dedicated themselves to work on small-scale agriculture, fishing. Uh, some worked for the United Fruit Company, but in the mainland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then finally, for bureaucratic jobs, because the Bocastown is actually the capital of the province, even though it's in, the, it's, it's in an, an archipelago. Mm. So this lasted up until the 1990s, when the boom of the tourism industry started to develop there. So that's, I hope I answered your question about the history of the presence of Afrantilians in Bocas. Yes, yes, definitely. So quickly, what led to that boom in tourism in the 90s? There's the the story that is always told is that in, in, in the archipelago in particular, there was an earthquake actually in Limón, Costa Rica, which is very close to to the archipelago, and it, it was felt also in the archipelago. So there were a number of damages there, and it, uh, the archipelago suddenly became a, a, a presence in the news, and people realized how gorgeous it is. It, it's really a very ideal, uh, stereotypical mm-hmm. Caribbean destination. So that's the so that's the story that is mm-hmm. told in Bocas del Toro specifically, and that as a result of that, there were investors and and people from different parts of the world who were so attracted to the place that started to come in large numbers. Um, That might be true there, but the truth is that the Panamanian government was uh, looking for alternatives to the fact that in 1999, the United States was going to leave Panama, leave the uh, canal canal zone in the hands of Panamanians. And and that meant large number of troops, military troops that paid money to stay there. Uh, All of them were going to leave. Mm -hmm. And that meant that there there were going to be some economic problems in the nation state. So they started to think about alternatives. And tourism became an alternative that they thought made sense because Mm -hmm. of the ecological beauty of Panama, the ethnic diversity. And they actually brought consultants from the U.S. to come up with a plan that would make sense for the country. So that's when tourism actually started officially in large numbers. And not that tourism was not present, it certainly was, but only to specific locations, such as the Panama Canal, the uh, Colón duty-free zone, and the archipelago of Unayala. So those three were the main uh, destinations. The rest of the country was untouched almost by uh, the touristic presence. Um, but with this plan, the entire country became part, uh, part of different zones that were sold to tourists as attractions. Wow. Afro-Antillians have developed their cultural and national identities in this historical context and especially mm-hmm. this this 
new era of tourism how how what was the reaction collective reaction to going from kind of peaceful insular life to this force force tourism first of all i i would like to note that afrontilians in general have have really fought for the right to be part of the Panamanian nation state long before tourism, especially intellectuals and, and politicians, writers, mm -hmm. artists. So there has been a, 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 a very lengthy movement in, in that to emphasize the importance of the presence of Afrontilians in the construction of this nation state. But I, my argument is that it was with tourism that the discourse became more relevant and Afrontilians became more respected as part of this complex uh, ethnic history of Panamanians. So just to give you an example, I, I talk in the book about this um, theme park called Mis Pueblitos, My Little Towns, and it is sort of mm -hmm. a replica of uh, the what they call the three roots of the Panamanian nation state. And one of them is the Hispanic colonial uh, route. Mm -hmm. The other one is the indigenous route. There are eight, in, eight indigenous uh, groups in Panama. Uh, in that theme park, only three are uh, represented. And then the third route is Afrontilian, uh, the Afrontilian route. So uh, as you said, suddenly from being this sort of isolated group, they became this uh, elevated mm -hmm. group uh, for the sake of, of tourism. Hmm. Very interesting because actually that's a bit unique in the Latin American context because I feel like in the nation state building of so many Latin American countries, there has been that same elevation of indigenous populations, but an erasure of Afro-descendiente populations. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that in Panama, it's taken a reverse I, I will Yeah, path. absolutely. I, I think that that has happened, even though indigenous peoples to a degree have been elevated. But again, I will say only for for touristic purposes, uh, with the exception of the Guna indigenous peoples who have had a long history of uh, ethnic pride uh, in, in relationship to the nation state. Uh, with the exception of that group, I would say that indigenous peoples have been um, presented as as attractions as well, but definitely not supported. Is that the, isn't that the same case for the Afro-Antillians, that they've been elevated in the discourse but not supported economically? Yes, I, I will absolutely say so, yes. It, it is the same situation. Mm -hmm. I also would like to note, though, that um, Afrontilians in the archipelago have a very interesting story, uh, history in the sense that they, they, could, they became, many of them became a part of the uh, rural middle class as a result of the fact that the United Fruit Company left. So when they left, they uh, sold their land at uh, very low prices. And some of the Afrontilian workers uh, who worked for the United Fruit Company were able to buy some of that land. And that sort of created a, a middle class, which is very unusual throughout Latin America, as you mentioned, very, very unusual. Uh, unusual. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result of that, in the archipelago, Afrontilians have always had the upper hand. That is not the case throughout the rest of Panama. But in the archipelago, they have been the ones in charge uh, and sometimes they have been the ones who have exploited indigenous peoples in that region. Mm. 
Yeah. Why is it that only three Indigenous communities are represented in that theme park that you mentioned? Is that just careless erasure or is there, you mentioned that there's one group that's particularly public about its affinity with the nation state. Mm -hmm. what, what kind of politics went into that? Do you think? And the group that is represented and that will always be represented because it is, will be the, the Guna indigenous peoples. The other groups really was an, a, a matter of lack of organization more than any intentional decision to erase some of these indigenous groups. It was more that the, the Guna indigenous peoples were able to organize themselves to have a presence, a permanent presence in this theme park, whereas the other groups were just not able to. To, to organize themselves. And certainly they were not supported by the administration of this theme park. Uh, or, because originally the, the, at least one of the groups was present for a little mm -hmm. while and then they didn't receive any support to maintain the, the facilities that they had and they just were not able to, to stay. So in a way, yeah, it was not intentional, but in a way, mm -hmm. certainly mm -hmm. there was neglect that didn't happen with the colonial uh, section of the, right, section of the, of the theme park. That is where um, all sorts right. of events happen and that's where uh, weddings happen, all, all sorts of different things. Um, but we, we do see some movement in the um, Afrontilian section of the, of the theme park. We, we see movement, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean, there are tourists and there are events that take place there. So there's, there's, a, there's a presence of tourists there and in the colonial town, but not in the indigenous town, in the same numbers. Carla, we've been speaking for about 45 minutes and I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, is there anything that you wanted to speak to that you feel like we didn't get to touch on? I just wanted to thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. I hope that I was able to provide a quick summary of uh, some of the ideas that I have developed over the years about, about Panama. Um, I think that's it. <laughs> yeah, great. Thank you so much. I learned so much about the history of Panama and race. So I thank you for that and hope to have you on the podcast again someday. I would love that. Thank you so much, Yvette. Okay, thank you. for.